0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, December the 11th, 2023. As the year runs down, probably not the greatest year in world history, certainly the, not the most cheerful year in world history. Uh, the talk shows in the US, at least at the weekend, focused on what's seen as a new crisis of migration uh, on the, what Americans call, at least, its southern border. Um Everyone's talking about a surge, including the New York Times. Um, CNN had an interesting series of interviews about this so-called surge of migrants at the southern border. And both left and right agree on this. Uh, For NPR, it's all about the suffering on the southern border. Uh, And for conservatives, uh, like Fox News, it's all about a, a massive surge of what's called adult male migrants so both agree on it although uh, they interpret it in different ways and of course donald trump is really running with this one uh he's talking about on day one addressing this he didn't quite put it in literally in these terms but it seems as if trump wants to declare war on these uh what at least he calls illegal immigrants. The notion of declaring war on a major crisis has become a familiar theme in Western politics, particularly on the right, but also on the left. And we have an interesting new book out uh, this month by uh, Reuben Anderson and David Keene, Reconomics, Why It's Time to End the War on Everything. And David Keene, uh, one of the co-authors, not uh, namesake of mine, but not a relative, is joining us from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Uh, David, I'm guessing that Trump's attitude to this supposed surge on the southern border is uh, a very good example of why you're arguing in Reconomics it's time to
1: end the war on everything. Well, yeah, I think um, crises at the border uh and we saw it, you know, with Calais, uh, in particular, in relation to Brexit, are, uh, from a certain point of view, the gift that keeps on giving, you know, in terms of constructing a certain kind of politics around a certain kind of perceived threat and a kind of politics of fear that, that, that is, in a way, pretty successful uh, politically. And part of what we're trying to highlight in the book, in a way, is that when you, when you don't solve a particular problem, like these perpetual crises at the border and all the human suffering that surrounds them, or like uh, international terrorism, or indeed the drugs problem, you know, there are some hidden benefits, as it were, to not solving these problems, to perpetuating them, uh, the whole sort of security establishment and the economic games that grow up around these failures are very substantial. Uh, the people, the governments that claim to be cooperating in these various wars but are actually pursuing very different agendas Um So there is a kind of uh, a network of interests in a way that does very well out of so-called policy failure. And we're trying to sort of highlight, which is quite a complicated task, the distribution of costs and benefits within these various failing endeavors. And to show in a way that they, they, they continue in large part because some people are doing well out of them and also because the costs are effectively outsourced to people who lack very much political power or influence.
0: Let's take then this southern border crisis, the surge in the United States. You suggest that there are bigger issues and of course they're related. You mentioned earlier the drug crisis, the war on drugs, George Bush's war on drugs was a huge failure, uh, the crisis of Central American politics and economics, and I guess of global politics and neoliberalism. We've done many shows on that. Um, I'm assuming that for you, that crisis is the bigger crisis behind the border surge, but you might also explain who's actually, in at least in your view, benefiting from this. Is it the, I mean, on both sides of the border, I guess there are people benefiting. So perhaps you might give a little bit more Color to, to to what you're arguing in terms of this particular crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are benefits for uh, governments that promise to control migration. You know, whether this is further south in terms of uh, somewhere like Guatemala or or Mexico, um, there is a sort of a An attempt to outsource migration control to some extent to these governments which may or may not be cooperating strongly in practice and those are part of the benefits that i think we need to look at and it extends obviously across the atlantic as well in terms of Various regimes from from Libya to Sudan to Turkey, you know, who have promised to rein in this problem to control international migration. And the impunity and the aid that they sometimes get as a result of that. And this, of course, sets up in a way a perverse incentive because if if you're benefiting from promising to rein in a problem, you may also have an incentive for stoking the problem uh in in certain respects and this is a sort of a rather fundamental i think perverse incentive that we're trying to highlight Uh, in terms of uh, american politics you know i think there is a huge payoff in a way electoral payoff in taking very complicated problems in terms of the industrial decline of america and all the many social problems that they have in the united states and sort of boiling it down to this um, very compelling uh, sort of mishmash of threats that migrants are held, held to represent. And you mentioned drugs, uh, crime, the sort of uh, alleged sexual threats that Trump has highlighted at various, uh, various points in his dubious um, career and so uh one has to sort of take account of uh, i guess quite a wide range of people who are trying to instrumentalize these various crises and when they don't solve it you know sometimes it suits them not to solve it and this is a big booming business the border security industry as my colleague Ruben anderson in particular has has documented you know among others
0: yeah, and it may be mirrored. We've done a number of shows on the development of the prison industry, the prison industrial industry, as some people have dubbed it, in the United States, and the way in which private enterprise seems to be benefiting in some ways from putting more and more people in jail. Some people, David, though, might be watching this and think, this guy is really cynical because there is a real problem on the border. That's not created by Donald Trump. Donald Trump isn't even president of the United States at the moment. Um, so you have tens of thousands of people, an unusual amount on the border. Some people might say, well, that's a real problem. And you're assuming that some people benefit, which may or may not be true. But it doesn't mean they're actually fostering that thing. Isn't that a rather cynical way of thinking about the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we that we have seen is a, a reduction, a pretty drastic reduction In the legal pathways for migration for people who are fleeing conflict and persecution. So, as a result of that, you know, you do get these very conspicuous crises at the border. You do get people piling into small boats coming towards the UK. You do get that horrendous uh, humanitarian situation in Calais, which I was able to observe at first hand you know, a few years ago. And these are, they, they seem to be, these crises seem to be, in a way, given, as as you mentioned. But actually, to a, quite a large extent, they are the result of policies and the predictable result of policies created in places like London and Washington and Paris. And in terms of, you know, if you take the example of Calais, which is one that I know relatively well, uh, You know, the desperation of people in Calais uh, and the terrible conditions in Calais, the fires and the fights and the disease and so on, the insanitary environment, you know, they really were the result of of a set of policies by Britain and by France creating that very intense human suffering. And out of that, you know, it's possible to construct these press reports That depict the desperation and show what a horrendous and in many ways threatening environment this is. And then that in turn plays very well, you know, in the case of the UK with the the leave campaign, you know, saying that we have to leave the European Union to stop this threat from Europe, as the Daily Mail uh, in particular used to say. So there is a lot of manipulation that's going on. Uh, I accept that it's not all down to to Trump, definitely, but he is uh, one of the masters at manipulating this situation and making it worse. We live, David, and again, you don't need me to tell you this, in an age in
0: which everyone thinks in conspiratorial terms that everyone has their own narrative of, of, of why things happen. Are you suggesting then that there are concrete, cabinet or bureaucratic meetings in governments in London or Paris or New- or Washington DC where politicians sit down and think how are we going to create these artificial crises to benefit ourselves whether it's immigration or drugs or overseas crises like in Afghanistan are you suggesting that the politicians are knowingly fostering these crises or is there some sort of Subconscious uh, drive amongst politicians, political parties, and media to pursue their own uh, interests?
1: Well, I think it's a great question. And uh, I don't know if you know um, the book Shock Doctrine, you know. Yeah, by
0: Naomi Klein.
1: Yes. I mean, that in many ways, I think, is a great book. Um, Where, perhaps, she goes a little bit far, in my opinion at least, is uh, sometimes she gives the impression that uh, the people have sat around, as it were, rather as you were describing, politicians in a smoke-filled room, uh, people like Milton Friedman, and actually sat down and planned to benefit from a crisis which they're in a position to create. And I think what Ruben Anderson and I are trying to do is to, um, we're we're not embracing that kind of conspiracy theory, but we are saying that once uh, a particular policy intervention, like a war on drugs or a war on terror or a war on illegal migration, once that starts to unravel and go horribly wrong, uh, there are a very diverse set of interests that realize that they can in a way benefit from it going horribly wrong. So in a sense, the, the the disaster is not necessarily planned in advance, but a very disaggregated and diverse coalition of interests can, as it were, seize on a crisis and find an opportunity in the crisis. And they tend to not have an incentive To put it right, you know, they tend to collude in information systems which disguise the severity of the problem. uh, And uh, they, in a sense, become part of the problem without perhaps ever having sat down and planned it in advance in the manner that you're, you know, that you're referring to. So I think that is a great question. And we're trying to think about, you know, what is the kind of, uh, um, what is a realistic conspiracy theory, if you want to put it like that? One that doesn't necessarily imagine these things are are all planned in advance, but nevertheless takes proper account of how people's interests may actually diverge from the declared aims of policymakers and how that produces all these very unsatisfactory results
0: We are speaking with David Keene, the co-author of intriguing new book, Reconomics, why it's time to end the war on everything. He wrote it with Ruben Anderson. He teaches international development at the London School of Economics. David, one of the truisms, which I'm always, I have to admit, rather uncomfortable with about 2023 or the 2020s is we're living in this age of crisis. Whether it's the immigration crisis or the war on whatever you want to call it, the war on drugs, the drugs crisis, the Middle East, uh, obviously the environment, the crisis supposedly of democracy. In your view as a professor of international development, uh, are are the 2020s a time of crisis or, or are they just another decade in world history which has always been marked by severe structural economic, political, cultural problems?
1: yeah I mean I think they are clearly a time of crisis with these overlapping wars um, uh, in Ukraine, in Israel, Palestine. Um, the the um, global warming crisis is obviously a massive unreal thing that's overarching everything else. Uh, the The crisis in democracy, I think is very, very, real i mean you have a guy that uh, essentially uh, tried to overturn democracy in the united states who is extremely popular and if that isn't the crisis of democracy uh, i don't know what is um but i also take your point that you know if, if if we want to find as it were the golden age of uh security when crisis didn't reign It is remarkably difficult to do so. I mean, some people look back to the 1990s as a sort of a pre 9-11 period uh, when there was a greater degree, perhaps, of um, international cooperation, uh, when the Cold War hadn't in a way been revived in quite the same way as it has today. And I think there are important distinctions to be made, you know, and 9-11, I think, wrought huge damage in so many different ways that we're only now beginning to realize how diverse those ways actually were. But it is, you know, if you think about the 1990s, then you would have to think about the Rwandan genocide uh, in 1994, uh, the wars in the former Yugoslavia. You know, these were terrible. Um, terrible episodes of human suffering. So it's in a way ridiculous to label that as some kind of golden age from which we have now descended. Uh, so I can see both sides of it, but the, 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 the concatenation of crises, the coming together of so many different crises that we see um, in the current decade, I think is, it is frightening. Uh, And a lot of crises are are feeding into each other. You know, the war on terror fed into the migration crisis. The migration crisis has also fed into our crisis of democracy. Uh, The war on terror, I think, gave an opportunity for Trump to say, well, we're going to reject this policy of endless wars, which is probably the one part of his political program that struck a little bit of a chord uh, with me. Um, and these crises are, are related in ways that we need to to disentangle.
0: David, yeah, and there's, there's a strong Orwellian quality to this, both, of course, the, the Orwell of politics in the English language, but also the Orwell of 1984, where in 1984 there were always wars, and you never know, you know, one week you were at war with one group, and then the next week you were at war with someone else. I wonder whether the use of the language of war this this obsession with bellicosity of one kind or another is is particularly ironic these days where people like trump talk about the war against um the war on the southern border against illegal immigration which isn't a war and never will be and he's quite incompetent of dealing with it and on the other hand there are real wars going on particularly in israel gaza where no one's willing to actually talk about war so or even describe it as a war they they're obsessed with this word terror uh, terror and terrorism which is another orwellian word how important then is language in 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 all this in your argument about reconomics of getting the language right of using words that actually have concrete meaning rather than just Uh, some sort of propagandist quality
1: yeah I think it's very important you know I'm glad you mentioned Orwell because I think you know his novel 1984 was a terrific illustration or imagining of how quickly as it were a crowd may be uh, manipulated and misled into radically redefining who the enemy is Um, And I think, you know, there is a surprising degree of willingness in a way for people to defer sometimes to official definitions of who we're supposed to hate, uh, what we're supposed to be most afraid of. And sometimes um, a war on drugs can mutate or a war on communism can mutate very quickly into a war on drugs. And suddenly the drug lords are the bad guys. Then 9-11, suddenly it's the terrorists who are the bad guys. Uh, Then we start to think about maybe Russia, China. Uh, We think about the human smugglers as the bad guys. So People say we have to have a war on human smuggling and so on. But I agree with you that uh, we've become sort of um, profligate, really, in our use of the term. So, a lot of things that are not actually wars are kind of hyped up. Uh, And you mentioned the migration situation. You even have, uh, you know, accusations of a war on motorists in the UK. Talk about a war on Christmas. You know, there's a kind of devaluing of the language of war. And then the real war comes along, like the war in Ukraine, or as you mentioned, in Israel-Palestine. And, uh, you know, we're in danger of, in a way, not recognizing it for what it is because this language has been devalued. But actually invoking this language of war, you know, whether it's a real war or not, uh, I think can be very, very useful in deterring a set of opinions that are questioning that war. Uh, And uh, we have to be very mindful of that. And I think a, a good example was maybe COVID.
0: Well, there was always wars, but didn't, I don't know whether it was Trump or somebody I'm sure talked about wars on COVID.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the war on COVID, we heard a lot about the war on the virus. Uh, <laughs> there was also a lot of language about the frontline workers and the sacrifices that were necessary and so on. And I think whether you're sort of, as it were, pro-lockdown, person, or somebody that wants to highlight all the damage that lockdown actually did, which was not very widely discussed in many quarters at the time. Uh, On either side of that debate, you can see how dissent was actually quite widely discouraged and even sometimes vilified often via this sort of language of war, which tends to be... Right,
0: and of course, if you're against, and if you're not willing to take part in a war, you're either literally or metaphorically a traitor.
1: Yes, and I think in so many spheres, we do see a very strategic expansion of the definition of the enemy from the named threat, you know, whether that's migrants or terrorists or drugs or the COVID virus to all those people who are seen as standing in the way of whatever response officialdom favors at that particular time and they in a way become incorporated as part of the enemy they're terrorist sympathizers they're playing to the hands of human smugglers we see the vilification of ngos who are trying to help people in the mediterranean uh with COVID, you know, people who were resisting the the vaccine or some of the vaccine mandates, they were pretty intensively vilified. You may say for good reason, because they were kind of impeding, they were contributing to a public health uh, problem. But I think the vilification is a problem, because we need dissent, you know, we need debate, we need people to feel that they can disagree with uh, with officials with quote the science and not be vilified for doing so we need people to feel they can rescue people from the mediterranean and not be prosecuted for doing so so this expansion of the enemy you know into people who are speaking their minds whether those people are actually right or wrong is a huge problem and this is in a way part of how uh, thought control yeah. to prevent- Orwell actually proceeds, you know, it's a control of language, it's a control of people. And some of these issues are not easy to get right. I mean, COVID, you know, I mean, they, they I think they locked down too slowly, but then the hidden costs of lockdown were also hushed up.
0: Yeah, I it's, like, the. Uh, I agree with you on this expansion of the enemy. You certainly have that in the US at the moment in terms of I know people are using literally these terms, but they're behaving as if there's a war on anti-Semitism and anyone who's in any way criticizing uh, Israel is part of the enemy. And, of course, there's some truth of that on the other side. Interesting conversation with... David Keene, my namesake, and in fact, the name of my brother, although he isn't my brother. Uh, David, when, uh, when people wage war on the Keens, you and I are going to be in the same <laughs> cell somewhere, some Orwellian cell somewhere, maybe room 101. Uh, he is the co-author of Reconomics, Why It's Time to End the War on Everything, Language Matters, and one publication that really knows that language matters is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, brilliantly edited by my old friend Leon Weaseltier. They're supporting this high kind, this high quality content, high quality guests like David Keene. Um, We're going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with David Keene to talk more about Reconomics. And I particularly want to address climate change, which we haven't really formally addressed yet so don't go away anyone the crisis will be back in about 33 and a half seconds beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration of intellectual delight of immaculate prose it's invaluable subscribe now or find liberties at your favorite bookseller and you can subscribe to liberties at libertiesjournal.com uh we're speaking with the great david Keane, the co-author of reconomics he teaches international development and in the london at the london school of economics and he's an expert on one kind of international development or another David, another of the headlines from this morning, which is particularly troubling and again Orwellian, I guess, is this climate summit, uh, this this latest uh, Cope event, which um, is taking place at you uh, at the in the United Arab Emirates, which is dropping, which is wants to drop the mention of fossil fuel phase out. There's something absurd about this, isn't there? and and perhaps fits into your thesis? Because if there really is a common war that we are all facing, it's the the climate crisis. And yet language matters and um, the interests of some groups, particularly the fossil fuel industry, seems to be winning.
1: Well, I think this is a war that we... I mean, this is a, a common crisis that we are all facing and we seem to be divided against each other probably worse than in many points than in, at many points in recent history and this is part of the the tragedy really of the amount of energy that we're putting into the war on migration the um different conflicts around the world the the kind of generation of of enmity that we're seeing now towards um countries like china um and obviously the the tragedy in the in the middle east as well so a lot of people's minds are being diverted from these crises that we all share you know and i think part of the the underlying crisis is also a crisis of inequality Um, which is feeding into the climate crisis as well. So, you know, there are various people who are ready to instrumentalize whatever crisis comes along. And I think the US military, for example, has been pretty keen to put itself forward as part of the solution to climate crisis. They actually contribute to climate crisis a great deal through their emissions. But there's this sort of general idea that if we can keep a lid on things, you know, if we can deal with the consequences of poverty, of inequality, of conflict, of climate crisis, if we can reinforce our security systems, you know, seal our borders, put more and more resources into the military, we can kind of keep a lid on this situation. We can insulate ourselves from its consequences, from the people that are fleeing and so on. And I think this is going to get worse, and there will be a political, an increased political instrumentalization of climate crisis. There will be a military instrumentalization of climate crisis, which we're seeing already, and an economic instrumentalization uh, in various ways as well is already happening. So we have to have an eye on those different games, those different agendas, and we have to try and be not be constantly distracted by as it were these epiphenomena, you know these very conspicuous consequences and these conspicuous so-called threats uh, that are fundamentally stemming from other more deep rooted problems and direct our attention towards the deep rooted problems and what are we going to do about them you know but a lot of people are selling us magical solutions i think for uh, for very grave and existential problems and they've been quite successful in convincing us that problems which are not actually existential are a massive threat you know the chances of being killed for example in a terrorist attack are very, very small, you know, and some people have said, you're more likely to be killed by your own toaster than by a terrorist. Nevertheless, terrorism is clearly a real problem. Uh, I think the difficulty comes when we, as it were, construct a whole system around the combating of terrorism and then all sorts of governments from Syria to, to Sri Lanka to Sudan construct a set of highly repressive and authoritarian policies, partly on the basis uh, of the promise that they're going to rein in terrorism or rein in migration. And this then fuels conflict, it fuels migration, it creates more opportunities for the political instrumentalization instrumentalization of the problem. And these grave underlying crises, uh, like climate change, you know, get perpetually uh, neglected. Of of course, they're not completely forgotten. They're the forefront of many people's minds. But clearly not enough.
0: David, is the problem with democracy itself? You talk about the epiphenomena of magical solutions that people don't address the real issues. But all these politicians, Trump obviously comes to mind, but many others as well, not just on the right, but on the left, are selling the idea of security, which isn't realizable and which results in these absurd wars on one thing or other. And the more they declare war, the more on a problem, the more it's almost like waving a red uh, or not a red flag in a way it's a red flag, but also a white flag of suggesting they actually don't know how to deal with this issue. So they talk about a war on something, war on drugs, war on immigration, war on COVID or whatever it is. Whereas non-democratic systems, China obviously comes to mind, but perhaps a more palatable one is Singapore, actually are able to address these issues. So might you be arguing in economics that democracy is not the best political system to address these deep structural problems of the 2020s?
1: Well, no, I don't think so. But uh, there are some pretty fundamental problems with the way that actually... excuse me, actually existing democracies have functioned uh, and the way that the media has played on people's fears within democracies. I think the record of uh, autocracies and dictatorships in terms of disaster prevention is on the whole a pretty terrible one, you know, including a uh, very large proportion of the major famines in the 20th century for example you know are attributable to totalitarian regimes and undemocratic Yeah regimes. one
0: thinks of Stalin in the Ukraine and I know that you, you wrote a, a book uh, earlier in your career called uh, the benefits of famine a political economy of famine and relief in
1: Sudan 83 to 89, so you're
0: all too familiar with this stuff.
1: Yes, I mean, um, but interestingly enough, in in the famine that I was writing about and investigating in Sudan at that time, uh, the country did actually have a democratic government, albeit one that was not functioning very well. And I think we have to keep in mind the possibility that even within a democracy, there may be certain groups Uh, that lack uh, political representation, effective political representation. And at the extreme, you know, if the majority decides to gang up on the minority and to put it to a vote as to whether the minority should be eliminated, uh, then it's possible, as it were, democratically to vote for a genocide that's not exactly what happened in sudan but it's a theoretical possibility that democracy offers us Uh, so i think the record of democracies is relatively good compared to autocracies autocracies are pretty uh, extreme often in covering up the severity of a problem uh, and in uh, manufacturing disasters But democracies are extremely vulnerable as well. And we know that uh, democracies sometimes precede autocracies, which is a disaster in itself, isn't it? If you think about the Weimar Republic giving way to Adolf Hitler and some of the fears now that democracy might be a seedbed for more autocratic government in the United States in particular. So we have to be, you know, we can't assume that democracy is going to inoculate us. Mm -hmm. And we have to assume that perhaps if Trump
0: is re-elected on day one, he claims he's going to be an autocrat, he might just shut the whole thing down and say, if you want to deal with the the problems that he at least sees, um, immigration, drugs, and so on, and needs to shut democracy down. Interesting subject. Uh, David, final question. I'm asking all our guests on Keen on this. uh, if We live, of course, in the age of AI. We haven't touched on that yet, but it's implicit in all of the things you're talking about. There's one issue in the world that, and and, and I'm careful about magical solutions. We can be a little theoretical here. But if there is a magical element of AI which actually could work, a real magic, what would it be? What would you like AI to address in the 2020s that doesn't seem to be, at least at this point, addressable?
1: Well, I suppose one of the things that uh, kind of came out of our study in a way was the, the way that people's uh, thought processes get narrowed down, you know, the shaping of agendas, the elements of thought control and often very severe agenda shaping that takes place around a whole variety of issues. And I think artificial intelligence in a way is not going to help us with that it may even uh, it may well make things worse and in many ways it's already making worse things worse as people like mark duffield have have argued but i do think that if we're trying to be creative you know if we're trying to think outside the box if we're trying to get beyond, beyond perhaps the two alternatives that we've been given or if we're simply trying to create a work of art you know and i'm interested in songwriting for example then something that gives us a a sort of a a greater proliferation of alternatives, you know, going back to David Bowie's, you know, the way he used to write songs, cutting up newspapers and reassembling the headings and so on. I think uh, with AI, there's a lot of possibility for generating random alternatives, for generating hundreds of alternatives, artistic, or even perhaps policy alternatives. And then ideally, you know, you could imagine that a human being could come along and select from those alternatives and use their own creative powers, possibly in harness with some of that randomly generated possibilities and come up with something more creative, you know, because we do tend to, we have muscle memory, we have political memories, we have communities that we're trying to ingratiate or appeal to. And we get stuck in a particular view, don't we? And that needs shaking up. And I wonder if AI could help us with that, as long as we, as it were, remain in charge and adjudicate on the, the variety of ideas that we're being presented with.